You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. The IT world used to be simpler. You only had to secure and manage environments that you controlled. Then came new technologies and new ways to work. Now, employees, apps, and networks are everywhere. This means poor visibility, security gaps, and added risk. That's why Cloudflare created the first-ever connectivity cloud. Visit cloudflare.com to protect your business everywhere you do business. Iowa's Democrats are still counting their caucus results. The FBI warns of a DDoS attempt against a state voter registration site. Trends in DDoS. Some new strains of ransomware are out in the wild. Spoofed emails may be an Iranian espionage effort. And the confessed Nintendo hacker cops a plea. From the CyberWire studios at Data Tribe, I'm Dave Bittner with your CyberWire summary for Wednesday, February 5th, 2020. The Democratic Party continues to count the results of its Iowa caucus. This afternoon, those results remain incomplete. 71% of the precinct's results have been counted. The problems at the caucus are attributed not to hacking, the Washington Post reports, but to a buggy, inadequately tested app produced by Shadow, effectively a for-profit tech arm for its investor, the Progressive Washington Not-for-Profit Consultancy acronym. The app that failed is said to have been developed in haste, a haste driven in part by fears that having precinct leaders phone their results in, as had been done in past campaigns, would have been insecure. It was finished and adopted without proper testing. For example, it wasn't finished in time to qualify for inclusion in Apple's store, and of course, many precinct leaders use iPhones. Many of the party officials who were to use the app only sought to install it the morning of the caucus, and the difficulties were, under such circumstances, unsurprising. Compounding the difficulties with the app is the apparent failure to prepare and exercise backups against the eventuality of exactly what happened. The state's party leaders say they've got a handle on the count, which they're confident they can complete accurately, only not so fast as they'd otherwise have been able to account for it. Sources at the Democratic National Committee say they warned Iowa not to try to run the caucus through the app, The Department of Homeland Security's Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency, CISA, has said it offered to test Shadow's app, but that the Iowa party turned down the offer. Iowa Democrats rebuffed the warnings from the National Committee, and according to the Washington Post, they say they didn't know about CISA's offer. No fresh lessons have emerged since yesterday, but it's worth repeating four of them. First, don't deploy election software until it's thoroughly tested, and Shadow's app seems hardly to have been tested at all, judging from the Wall Street Journal's account. Second, resilience always demands some sort of affected, tested backup. Third, a technical problem, even if it's an innocent mistake, erodes trust and spawns unfounded rumors, what the Washington Post calls a cesspool of toxic conspiracy theories. And fourth, of course, if someone is in a position to help, offers help, consider taking it. And before we leave Iowa, it's worth repeating that the problems at the caucus were an unforced error, a case of poor execution, and not a cyber attack, whatever they're saying out in that toxic cesspool the Post is pointing out. 
There is one incident of cyber interference in election systems, as opposed to campaign or caucus systems. Bleeping Computer reports that the FBI yesterday issued a private industry notification that it's received reports that a state's voter registration and information site was hit with an attempted distributed denial-of-service attack. The Bureau didn't say which state's site was affected, but it characterized the attack this way. Quote, The FBI received reporting indicating a state-level voter registration and voter information website received anomalous domain name system server requests consistent with a pseudo-random subdomain attack. End quote. That is, the system was flooded with a large number of DNS requests for non-existent subdomains. Happily, rate limiting on the targeted DNS servers prevented the attack from succeeding, and voter registration wasn't affected. What's the general state of play in distributed denial of service these days? Researchers at Imperva yesterday published their Global DDoS Threat Landscape Report. The categories of victims are among the interesting things in their description. By number of attacks, the top two classes of target are gambling, with 31% of the attacks, and gaming, number one victim at nearly 36%. The most affected countries are in South or East Asia, with India leading at just under 23%. Looking just at application attacks, however, the biggest target, hands down, was Ukraine. Doppelpamer is the latest ransomware gang to not just encrypt data, but to steal data as well. Data Breach Today points out that Doppelpamer has now joined Maze and Sudinokibi in the new normal for ransomware. A ransomware attack should now be considered a data breach until proved otherwise. Most people would like to know when something bad happened to them, right? We'd rather not stick our heads in the sand, our fingers in our ears, or turn a blind eye to news that could affect our livelihood. Common sense. But, and you knew there was a but coming... For a variety of reasons, many companies aren't all that eager to hear from security researchers about their potential vulnerabilities. Curtis Minder is CEO and co-founder of GroupSense, and he shares insights on the pros and cons of sharing your findings with a company you discover has been breached. So GroupSense is a cyber reconnaissance company. We focus on digital risk protection services for enterprise customers and, and governments. As part of our work on a daily basis, we are uncovering breaches, stolen data, stolen intellectual property, things like this, mostly for our clients. But in the margins of what we do, our analysts occasionally find data that affects others that are not clients. And in those cases, uh, and we, we put together a, a program where we notify the affected parties, you know, free of charge as part of, uh, you know, for goodwill and as part of our service, we just give that data away and we notify them when we see it. So what would your recommendations be then for organizations who are out there listening to this? How can they have a pipeline for when someone needs to get a hold of them with this sort of information, which I guess we can agree is in their best interest? What sort of things should they have in place? Well, I'll comment and say that it may not be in their best interest in some cases, if you, if you think about the outcomes from this sort of notification, but it's certainly in their, a lot of times in their constituents' best interest, right? So their their customers' best interest. I think the problem is, you know, due to some laws that vary state by state on breach notification, things like this, there is no provision in most of these laws or the ones that I've seen that effectively tell an organization that they have to have a channel where they listen to inbound information like this. 
I understand that it's a difficult problem to solve because there's a lot of noise. Uh, you know, there's a lot of people trying to sell things and a lot of scams. But there should be some official program for external notification of, of breach awareness. So is it that these organizations are, are just sticking their heads in the sand or their incentives aren't, aren't necessarily uh, aligned? They're being pulled in different directions by different groups. Right. And th- I mean, this is effectively why we have regulatory bodies that, that govern things like this, because there are certain actions that are unnatural or not indicative to the growth of a business that companies are just not going to take on their own without some sort of guiding hand, if you will. And so I think I speculate that in some of these cases that the companies are are choosing to ignore the problem, or perhaps they're acknowledging it and doing research on their own, but not acknowledging it in a public way or, or acknowledging my initial outreach. What sort of adjustments would you like to see? If, if you can, you imagine a, a solution like this that would be that would work out for all parties involved. I can imagine one, but imagination doesn't doesn't do much for us, does it? <laughs> I think it goes along the lines of in somewhere in in the regulatory statutes, they need to dictate a, a process for third party notification. If if not that, then perhaps within the bug bounty programs, there could be a, a process for this. Obviously, this is something that, that is going to take some energy and resources on both the regulatory side or the bug bounty side or and certainly on the enterprise side to consume it and verify it. But um, there needs to be something outlined. It should be it should be fairly standard. To date, I have not seen this in any of the enterprise customers I've interfaced with. I have seen it with government customers where they do have a process in place, but it's ad hoc. It's different for each organization. Yeah, it seems to me like if a you know organization like yours, your team at GroupSense, if there was some way that you could establish yourselves, you know, reg, uh, register yourselves with with the regulators and say we're a good company in good standing, you know, this is what we found. If there was some way to have uh, have those findings both hit the regulators and the company affected at the same time, at least then the company knows that first of all the messaging is coming from a vetted source, but also the regulators uh, have been notified as well and and uh, you know they can react as they see appropriate yeah that, that that's that's a one that's one approach i agree that that certainly would be effective in getting uh, protecting the constituents if the regulatory bodies were notified uh, simultaneously yeah i guess but like you say though i mean it's complicated and and nothing's perfect right exactly yeah yeah we have to say the good side of the story right which is the the companies that have responded and we've engaged with the outcomes have generally been positive where we've been able to actually supply them with useful data. We work with their IR teams and we come to a resolution. Typically, we're working also with their law firms in some fashion or some capacity as part of the process. And for the benefit of companies that are listening to the podcast, yes, this is a scary thing, but the good news is is we're not charging for this. We'll, We'll see it all the way from the notification through the process. Anything you need from us from a research perspective is provided free of charge through the entire process. And We've actually helped a, a number of well-known large companies through the process. And when they don't have the resources internally, we've been able to help them source those for the breach response, et cetera. So, uh, the, you know, on the flip side, there are some good stories that come out of this as well. <laughs> That's Curtis Minder from GroupSense. Security firm Veronis this morning reported finding a new ransomware strain, which it's calling Save the Queen, after the dot Save the Queen the attackers append as an extension to the affected files. The ransomware propagates using the sysvol share on Active Directory domain controllers. 
The only thing unusual about Save the Queen is what Vronis calls its creative use of Active Directory to spread the dropper. Beyond that, the ransomware's components seem largely commodity tools packaged into a straightforward bit of malware. Reuters says that emails spoofing the accounts of journalists are being used to prospect targets with bogus approaches for interviews. It appears to be an espionage campaign, and the circumstantial evidence of targets and topics suggest an Iranian operation. Remember, this evidence is circumstantial, but the spoofing of accounts belonging to journalists working in the West but who have connections with Iran to approach high-profile targets who themselves have Iranian background is suggestive. Finally, one wonders what the cops and robbers are thinking, sometimes. Well, at least the robbers. Ryan Hernandez, who took a guilty plea Friday to charges related to hacking Nintendo servers to steal games and other things, not only spent years doing so, but was brazen enough to brag about his exploits on social networks like Twitter and Discord. Vice has the whole sad story. Nintendo got wise to him in 2016, and in 2017, the FBI visited him at home to reason with him. Cliché alert. He lived with his parents. After discussion, Mr. Hernandez indicated he understood the seriousness of the matter and promised to return to the straight and narrow, but he was back up on Discord within hours, mocking the FBI in, we must observe, appallingly spelled posts. A few days later, he escalated, seeking to create a meme in which SpongeBob SquarePants was an FBI special agent, and in case anyone failed to get it, he tagged the image with, Hi, at Nintendo America. Other public boasting enabled the FBI, using nothing more than their browser, apparently, to get enough for a search warrant. Mr. Hernandez faces up to three years in Club Fed, and he's agreed to pay Nintendo just under $260,000. The 21-year-old resident of Palmdale, California, will have another opportunity to amend the path of his life, and we hope he'll take it. Managing the requirements for modern security programs is increasingly challenging and time-consuming. Enter Vanta. Vanta gives you one place to centralize and scale your security program, quickly assess risk, streamline security reviews, and automate compliance for ISO 27001, SOC 2, and more. You can leverage Vanta's market-leading trust management platform to unify risk management and secure the trust of your customers. Plus, use Vanta AI to save time when completing security questionnaires. CyberWire daily listeners can get $1,000 off by going to vanta.com cyber. That's V-A-N-T-A dot cyber. In the dynamic world of enterprise security, identity architects and IT leaders face a major challenge. Growth by repeated acquisitions multiplies the complexity of everything. Multiple IDPs, MFA providers, policy engines that all need to coexist. This can lead to fragmented user identities and policies that create security vulnerabilities and add access friction. Strata Identity solves this. Now you can decommission unneeded IDPs and consolidate the ones you'd like to keep without rewriting apps or disrupting users, engineers, and app owners. 
Plus, Strata's modular architecture makes it easy to integrate with any identity provider without manual maintenance and coding. Join the ranks of cybersecurity leaders using identity orchestration. Visit strata.io slash cyberwire, share your top identity security priorities, and receive a pair of complimentary AirPods Pro. Offer valid for organizations with over 5,000 employees. Step into a new era of identity management at strata.io slash cyberwire. And I'm pleased to be joined once again by Craig Williams. He's the director of Talos Outreach at Cisco. Craig, always great to have you back. Um, you all recently uh, published some information over on your blog. This is Stolen Emails Reflect Emotet's Organic Growth. Uh, so Emotet is uh, still uh, under your watchful eye here, yes? Absolutely. Uh, Emotet's been one of those campaigns that we've been monitoring for like literally years. I don't know that it's the longest, I'm sure we've been monitoring a couple of things longer, but it's definitely up there in terms of things that we've just been sitting back and watching and keeping a really close eye on for both our customers and the internet as a whole. And so what are you tracking here? What's the latest? Well, so what we saw in this particular campaign was uh, basically a compromise of some government and military customers. And then, you know, as usual, Emotet will use those accounts to move laterally within organizations and because these were government and military, it's moving inside of government and military. And obviously, when you see that type of thing, it's very concerning because generally speaking, if people see emails from sources that they consider internal, they're much more likely to trust them. And that's why mm-hmm. we needed to make sure the word got out that there are malicious actors using these relationships for nefarious purposes. Can you give us some of the specifics about how uh, Emotet functions? Yeah, I mean, one of the one of Emotet's favorites is to basically find conversations that have existed over an email thread and basically continue on that thread with a malicious attachment. So, you know, if you've got a thread with your buddy and it's gone on and on and on and all of a sudden your buddy replies back with, oh, you know what, that's right. And then attaches like receipt.pdf, probably don't open that. <laughs> right, right. So Emotet works by getting access to your email account for get, getting in there and uh, being able to do those sorts of things. Well, that or fish credentials. And generally speaking, it responds with a, a Word document that's been has macros embedded in it. And, you know, the, the typical Emotet attachment is one that you open where it'll then entice you to open a macro or otherwise interact with it for the compromise to take place. Mm hmm. Is this a case where, because it's so effective, does that explain the, the longevity of Emotet? Yes, and we actually saw them take a break for the uh, Orthodox Christmas holiday. And so obviously that has certain political implications, and it can lead you to conclude that actors are potentially operating out of certain areas. And when those number of TTPs add up over time, year after year, it can help you really get a good idea of where these operators are acting out of. You know, I think as of this morning, we're even tracking campaigns that are distributing themselves as uh, new coronavirus information. So these actors aren't going to go away and they're going to continue to find very enticing reasons for people to open these email attachments. And uh, best practices to protect yourself here? Well, this falls back to just don't open untrusted email attachments, right? And if you are on a thread and all of a sudden an attachment appears, Even if the thread appears to be legitimate, and even if the reply doesn't seem that unusual, 
you should probably just pick up the phone and make sure that the person sending it intended to send it, especially if it hasn't come up in the thread before. Now, obviously, if someone says, hey, on Thursday, I'm going to send you that email, then it's probably okay. Uh, yeah. But alternatively, if you have a thread that's existed for a while, that's been basically abandoned, and then all of a sudden someone replies to it with an attachment and maybe a couple of really generic statements that don't make a lot of sense in the context of the conversation, that's when your guards shoot up. Yeah. All right. Well, the blog is titled Stolen Emails Reflect Emotet's Organic Growth. Craig Williams, thanks for joining us. Thank you. And that's the Cyberwire. For links to all of today's stories, check out our daily briefing at thecyberwire.com. And for professionals and cybersecurity leaders who want to stay abreast of this rapidly evolving field, sign up for Cyberwire Pro. It'll save you time and keep you informed. Listen for us on your Alexa smart speaker, too. The Cyberwire podcast is proudly produced in Maryland out of the startup studios of Data Tribe, where they're co-building the next generation of cybersecurity teams and technologies. Our amazing Cyberwire team is Elliot Peltzman, Peru Prakash, Stefan Vaziri, Kelsey Bond, Tim Nodar, Joe Kerrigan, Carol Terrio, Ben Yellen, Nick Vilecki, Gina Johnson, Bennett Moe, Chris Russell, John Petrick, Jennifer Iben, Rick Howard, Peter Kilpie, and I'm Dave Bittner. Thanks for listening. We'll see you back here tomorrow. Tomorrow.